You're about to listen to an all-new issue of Geek in the City Radio, which comes to you free every single week over on geekinthecity.com. If you enjoy helping us keep this show free, and I know you do, pop on over to patreon.com forward slash geekinthecity, where we have all kinds of levels that get you some fantastic awards and benefits. But if you can't help us out there, just please share this show over on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. And as always, our opening and closing theme brought to you by nerd rock group Megathruster. And now, let's get on with an all-new issue of Geek in the City Radio. One, two, three, four! It's been a long, long week. Why don't you spend some time with geeks? So many issues a day into which we must delve. Talk about the stuff that makes you scream and shout. Hit the red alert, we're going more factor 12. Thanks for pressing play. Now we're gonna save the day. Alright! Why, hello! And welcome to issue 572 of Geek in the City Radio. I'm one of your hosts, Aaron Duran. I'm one of your other hosts, Spinarita. And I'm your other other host, Cable Hashitani. And we are recording live on election night and trying to ignore the fact that it's election night. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we have a couple of guests joining us as well, which is pretty cool. Uh, yeah. Denise, want to intro our guest for us? Yes, so we are joined today by Monty Nero and Yishan Lee, who are here to talk to us about their new upcoming book, Frenemies. Hey, how you doing? Hey, Good. thanks for joining us, guys. Pleasure. And thanks to Yishan, because I believe you're uh, you're quite far away, aren't you? It's morning where you are. Yeah, I mean, it's... <laughs> 10.30, technically. I'm in Shanghai right now, and um, it's not that early, but, you know, artists, we don't wake up early. Right? <laughs> I know I wasn't out of bed at 10.30 today, so, you know, thanks for being here. Well, and, and Monty is in Dundee, aren't you? Yeah, Dundee, Scotland. It's 2.30 in the morning here. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you're partying. That's, that's where you're a, at. a whole international yeah. geek in the city today. Yeah. I think yeah. this might be the most time zones we've had on the show at one time. Oh, wow. Cool. Yeah, one, one time. Yeah, the, the most we ever had was someone on the East Coast and someone from Australia at the same time, but that was it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's cool. And it just yeah, hit me around, like... around this time four years last year, my wife was just leaving Shanghai. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, let's, let's jump right into it, uh, starting with... Um, Monty or Yishan, I don't know which one of you wants to take the lead on this, but would you like to give a quick synopsis of what Frenemies is for the audience? Okay, well, it's about uh, seven rival uh, LGBT and straight characters who are all searching for a mysterious lost planet that will destroy the solar system unless they can find it. Uh, so you've got seven different characters, all very different, all very sort of... Uh, disparate kind of uh, worldviews and they have to decide whether they're going to help each other 
to reach this planet or whether they're going to sort of uh, mess things up for each other, uh, which is where the frenemies aspect comes from. Uh, it's uh, with something like this serious at stake. They have to decide uh, uh, if their best friend is their worst enemy um, when, they're, when they're trying to search for this planet. Okay, so sort of a uh, like a battle royale situation where you know sometimes it helps to to take on some alliances, but ultimately only one person can win. So eventually, it's probably going to be some backstabbing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. When they start off, they all appear to be at very least friendly. Um, they're all uh, uh, they all know each other. They're all um, PhD students at a university. And then this uh, strange uh, phenomena happens due, due to this uh, research they're doing into uh, something called the Eye of Stars, which uh, turns out to be a, a kind of a space traveling device. Um, and um, they sort of discover this uh, this missing planet that used to be part of our solar system. Um, and the aliens on this planet are so advanced that their their technology basically looks to us like like. Um, like um, like dark magic, mm. so it's kind mm. of um, the effect that this magic has on the characters as they search for this planet um, is is where we spend a lot of the focus of the book. So it's kind of like a, com- a combination of um, traditional pulp sci-fi, but then updated with a lot of uh, sort of progressive and modern ideas to to make it all fresh, uh, which is uh, which is um, a lot of fun. Nice. Yeah, I noticed that you've you have a quite a few female characters in the in the group right off the bat, and everyone has like a very unique look. They don't all sort of have this cohesive "we're a team of adventurers" vibe. I'm assuming that that's something that you guys kind of collaborated on aesthetically. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's why I wanted Yishan to draw it because she's so great at drawing and designing characters. Um, so, um, you've got, uh, you've got four different, uh, women on this book, uh, Jamelia, Kai, Delphine and Minerva. And, um, um, I mean, Minerva's a, like a professor of, um, uh, art history and, um, Jamelia's the youngest. She's, um, she's a lot more sort of naive and sort of, um, new to all this kind of stuff. So, um, so, um. I just sort of briefly kind of like described the characters in sort of like, you know, a couple of sentences. And then I sort of just gave that to Yishan uh, because I knew that Yishan would, um, would kind of design and draw exactly the sort of cool original kind of stuff you can see um, on the comic. Mm-hmm. How did, how did you and Yishan uh, initially meet? Like what brought you guys, to, what brought you together on this project? Can you remember Yishan? I think we were sitting in a Comic Con together um, in, uh, I think, Dundee or somewhere in Scotland. And uh, we were like, I really like how much you can talk and make sense. <laughs> and, um, let's try work something together, work on something together. And then I think you came out with this idea after maybe a year or so. And we just decided to give it a try. So he sent me the characters, and uh, it's mainly just character descriptions of the char- of personalities, and um, just asked me to to do cosplay clothes. Um, <clears throat> little did I know, they gonna fight, 
So <laughs> we end up having too much cos- cosplay gears on them. I think that's a real life situation for cosplayers as well, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, too much. And you go out, you cannot sit. So that is a real problem uh, where I actually draw from me as well. It's like, actually, there's the whole, the full gear on them. How can they actually make that movement? And, but yeah, the characters are set, so I just have to carry on. <laughs> <laughs> I think you, I think you pulled it off. The, the action sequences uh, in this preview that you shared with us are pretty good, so. Yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing. Um, the the comic's got a real bounce to it and a real sort of life to it. And um, Yishan's re- just really, really good at, at drawing characters and um, and designing characters and then making them act because obviously the relationships between the characters are really important. We've got a lot of really cool science fiction concepts and ideas that we explore and a lot of action, a lot of laser blasting and, and aliens and stuff. But um, to me, that's always quite boring unless you've got a really interesting... Uh, change in every scene between the sort of relationship of the characters and um, Yishan's really good at, at bringing that to life it was actually, I think it was in Birmingham I think it was a, the Birmingham Comic Con that we first met um, and I just I was sitting next to yeah, I was sitting next to Yishan all day and she was just um, surrounded by by fans all day and just drawing picture after picture after picture and they're all brilliant and I thought, Jesus Christ, she's so talented. <laughs> this is <laughs> this is this is amazing. And um, uh, what she what she what she's too modest to say is that after I wrote, I kind of wrote the script almost straight away. Sort of, I think I started working on it the following week because Yishan's so busy and she's so popular. She does a lot of work for Image and Dark Horse and um, DC and all these kind of very big companies. I was too sort of uh, shy to sort of show the script because I thought oh she'll just be too busy she'll just be too busy to draw it so there's no point you know she's always working uh but luckily luckily after about a year she uh she actually asked me if I had anything uh that she could draw and I and I said yeah I've actually got this script that I wrote with you in mind like when we first met so that, so that was really cool is that what happened <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, yeah I think that's a lot of good uh, artistic relationships uh, are born on the con floor. So I like that yeah. story. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we, I don't know if you remember you, Shan, but we went out that night. We went out with your husband uh, and we went out and we, we got drunk and we went dancing. and It was really good fun. <laughs> so I think that's always a good basis for working together, you know, if you, if you, if you, if you get on. So yeah, an average like convention a, uh, night is how you all met then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. What, that's... quite important for the artists and writers to actually personally know each other because um, otherwise when, when you have like changes coming, it can be, um, it can start a fight. But if you know personally in, and then, you know, they, what they do and, uh, you know, they, they, what they normally do makes sense. And you take their ideas and the comments much nicely, much nicer. Yeah, that's really that's, great. Yeah, that's true. I, I always uh, work with like friends, not just like, you know, some random artist that I know over the internet. I always work with someone that, that, that I know well. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, and so one thing I noticed when I was going through this preview is I don't see a label on here. So I was curious, are you working with a publisher or are you guys self-publishing this one? Well, uh, to start off, we're, we're publishing ourselves through Kickstarter. Um, and you can uh, see the Kickstarter now if you go to Frenemies, The Lost Planet, one and two. Um, there's, uh, there's loads of really cool rewards that Yushan's drawn, or we've got some other artists involved as well, some really good science fiction artists to do covers and prints and things. Uh, you can get rewards from as little as $3 up to sort of 750 so there's a big kind of range of, uh, you know, how much amazingly cool stuff you might want to get with the comic. But the main thing is that the comic itself is just a really, really fun read. And I think that's really important, especially at the moment. People just want escapism and they want to enjoy, you know, um, something new. Uh, so, um, yeah, it's uh, very much uh, the sort of comic where you're just trying to entertain people and, I think with a comic like this, you want to have a lot of what people expect with science fiction and space fantasy. You know, you want to have a lot of um, a sort of a, a really great villain, for instance, a really sort of dastardly villain. And I'm really, really happy with our villain on this uh, on this comic. I think um, we introduce her in this in this issue, and she's uh, she's really really one of my favourite characters already. She's got so much about her, just visually as well as. Uh, in what she says and does and so forth. Yeah, that visually, the, she uh, definitely the stands Marchioness. out on the page. Oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Yeah, uh, you're that's Mar- right. the Marchioness, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's uh, She looks very high-tech. She's got, like, that sort of visor and that futuristic suit that kind of glows. But then she's also got this uh, really uh, cool kind of flowing sort of feathered cape with um, six tentacles that come off it. And uh, the tentacles are actually, like, uh, talons at the end. But if you imagine in the palm of your hand, you've got like a fanged mouth that can sort of uh, eat eat stuff and grasp onto your face. So it's really disgusting. And um, she uses these, uh, she sort of wields six laser swords. So there's a brilliant scene Yishan's drawn uh, when the character's introduced where she's like whirling around, uh, sort of uh, besting all these adversaries and giving, uh, giving out some killer dialogue, schooling them in uh, how the universe should be working. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, I I'm looking at that panel right now where they where you introduced that character and it's a very the wicked and divine meets Star Wars sort of a moment there a little bit of like a Tron look it's it's a really fun unique design I really appreciated that one. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, um, I'm curious. Um, who would you say is your target audience for this particular story? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think. The way I work, um, I don't know about Yishan, but the way I work is I always try and just make a comic that I would really enjoy and like to see. Um, so I find that if I if I do that, um, then um, I just need to find people that are in, enthused and excited about the same kind of things that that excite us um, about about a comic. Um, so I, I never really I never really think beyond that. Um, I think especially nowadays, the way the world works, it's all about sort of um, bubbles and people's interests. And it's just about meeting and enthusing people that have the same interests as you. So uh, that's how I always approach this this kind of thing. Um, I I guess um, if I was was looking at it from a publisher's point of view, 
you're looking at sort of like a cross between sort of um, Saga fans, uh, sort of Flash Gordon Star Wars fans, and sort of Dungeons and Dragons fans, because there's definitely that sort of Dungeons and Dragons <laughs> 80s cartoon type vibe mm-hmm. to the relationship between the characters. Yeah, definitely. Cool. Uh, we've actually got a, we also have a live chat where people watch us on YouTube. And they, they sent oh, us in questions, and we just got a question uh, from our uh, from our listener, uh, Hisham, who was curious how long you see the story running, or is this ongoing? How many volumes would you, like, in the long run, see this to go, or is it pretty limited in story, like what, you, what you're planning to release? Okay, well, initially we're doing um, four issues, which makes, uh, you know, a complete, a complete story that you can enjoy. Um, and then... Um, the way that we've set up the story with the sort of um, quest for the lost planet and of course having seven characters to explore, which is brilliant because you can, you can always see things from somebody else's point of view. You can always see a scene that you think you know what's happened and then you see it from someone else's point of view and it's uh, way more interesting than you initially realized. So there's a lot of um, storytelling that you can uh, get into. So um, Again, the, the way I approach a comic is I just think like, oh, man, I've got so many science fiction ideas. And I've got, <laughs> I've got, this, I've got this sort of um, style and tone of character that I want to explore. So, you know, I just want to have somewhere to put all that stuff and so that people can sort of enjoy it. So, um, I mean, I could, keep on, uh, I could keep on making this for sort of 25 years, no problem. <clears throat> Um, with new stories and, and new characters and new revelations and so forth. So um, that's also, that's often the battle with the first um, the first story is you're just thinking like, well, what are the key things I need to get into this initial introduction? So it's very much the case that I like to write I like to write stories where you can pick up any issue and know what's going on and sort of um, get a good grasp of the story and the characters. But at the same time, that it makes a much more complex narrative as it as it as it continues. So uh, I think I think people will enjoy it um, if if they uh, they pick it up for the first time. Nice. Uh, so, do you want to give any sort of uh, teasers for what uh, what sort of major or key events uh, people can expect to see happening in your first arc? Oh, right. Yeah, sure. Um, well, initially. Um, the the characters, all seven characters, they they find themselves um, in the middle of this very intense space battle on a on a distant um, distant planet. Uh, it's like a three way battle between different alien races, and uh, there's an awful lot of shooting and um, action, and uh, they have to figure out through that you sort of reveal the sort of character of of, of each of the of the people involved and how they respond to that. And then um, the, the 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 three races are all kind of searching for this missing planet, which which used to be part of our solar system and has this sort of very powerful technology uh, which they all want to utilize. Um, so um, initially, there's a there's an incident that's about to happen at the end of this issue, which is um, the first time that the that the uh, characters in uh, uh, interact with the alien uh, magic, the alien technology, and that has a very like sort of life changing effect on all of the characters, um, which um, which is kind of like the the key sort of turning point in the initial arc. 
So um, it's kind of like um, there's a lot of kind of mystery and sort of fear as to what the intention of these mysterious aliens that are so powerful that can make a planet disappear, what, what their kind of intention was and what they're up to. Um, so there's kind of like a sort of X-Files um, um, sort of um, 2001 A Space Odyssey kind of epic kind of feel to the sort of strangeness of what's happening, as well as all the sort of um, uh, Flash Gordon t- type, uh, type laser action. Wow, that's that is so many like big different elements. I'm I'm curious to see how that's all going to converge. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's kind of like uh, scene to scene. I mean, we start off with a a very sort of intense action scene, and then it sort of shifts as soon as they're um, they find this alien ship where they take shelter, and then it's very much more like a sort of horror kind of thing where they sort of discover these like really disgusting alien corpses, and it's all kind of spooky and. Uh, a bit like, bit like alien or, or something like that. So um, I think, yeah, you sort of um, you're always thinking of like the classic science fiction that you've enjoyed and um, how to sort of convey that in comics, how to get that across in comics. And uh, I mean, Yishan's so talented; she can kind of handle all this stuff. She's done. She recently did a a Hellboy story which was just um, really, really spooky and like a lot of dark, dark shadows and stuff. And a really, uh, a really great story that you should uh, check out online if you, if you want to have a look for that. Um, so um, yeah, she, uh, she can handle all this kind of, um, this kind of different tone as we sort of shift scene to scene, but still keep the characters as like the core of it and keep the, the heart of the story at the core of it. Nice. Excellent. What's uh what is the, what is the name of that title, Yishan? Oh, it's, um, I get confused by numbers. It's Kukiari uh, and, uh, let me just get the book one second. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, while she's grabbing that, Monty, I'll let you go first. What, uh, oh, here it is. Oh. Okay, BPRD, 1956. Awesome. Oh, you got to do one of the fun ones when Hellboy went back to Mexico. Those are always some of my favorite ones. Uh-huh. Ooh. <laughs> I don't know. They, they have asked me to do it. They, they haven't contacted me for it, so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. Well, so one last time, your Kickstarter is is Kickstarter Frenemies: The Lost Planet, uh, and then where can people find each of you on the internet? You sure? Oh, my website is um, www. L I Y I S H A N, which is my name, Leishan dot com. And Monty, we're gonna, we're, gonna, we're gonna put her site yeah. in the chat right now too. So. Mm-hmm. Oh, cool, cool. Um, something you can get on the Kickstarter is um, Yishan's doing a few sort of original art kind of rewards, um, which are really beautiful. Because, like I say, that's how we first met. Was um, just sitting there watching her sketch and draw with ink and. Um, colors like all these amazing characters so <laughs> she's um she if you can get an original bit of artwork from her that is a, a really beautiful thing to to have on your wall obviously that's that's uh, one of the more expensive rewards you can get but um there's also there's also prints and um you can get um um variant covers of the comic and the other thing we're doing on the kickstarter that's um uh, that's new is we're actually doing like a, a new story every day. So instead of just doing updates where we say like, oh, you know, 
this is how the co- this is how the, the comic's doing and so forth. We actually release a new story every day, a new bit of like uh, pulp fiction and a new bit of the story, so you find out a bit more about the characters yeah. and and how it how it ties in with the the main comic. Okay, so, it's um, very immersive. Yeah, that's been a lot of fun. Um, as soon as you come onto the site, everything the entire Kickstarter is is like it's a fictional part of the world of the comic. Mm-hmm. So um, it's a lot of fun to write that and to interact with the readers in that sort of way. Uh, they've they seem to have really been enjoying it so far. So uh, yeah, it's it's a lot of fun to write the the updates as well because uh, you sort of have to drop them at the same time every day. So you, I need to get them finished. I need to get, I need to keep typing. Um, <laughs> So uh, you can find my stuff at uh, montynero.com, M-O-N-T-Y-N-E-R-O. And uh, it's the same Montynero on Twitter and Montynero on Facebook and so forth. There's a little page on my website where you can learn more about Frenemies and the characters and see some more of um, Yushan's sort of concepts for the characters and so forth. So, um, yeah, check it out. Excellent. And so nice. those uh, those mini story updates are going to be available to anyone who backs the Kickstarter. And yeah. I, I'm guessing that the um, the um, the special art done by Yishan uh, comes at the founding fan doodle edition level. Uh, yeah, yeah. There are there are three levels you can get uh, different types of art on. Kind of starts with like um, you know very simple kind of head and shoulder sketches, and then. Um, you can get a, a beautiful commission from Yishan at the at the highest highest two levels. Yeah, and as an example on the Kickstarter set, uh, Yishan has posted a absolutely gorgeous. Um, oh God, I'm blanking on the word. Uh, cover art of um, Leia. It was really oh, really yeah. beautiful piece. <laughs> yeah, no, so, that is a lovely that is a lovely picture. Yeah, yeah. yeah one, so everyone, one be one sure one. to check that out. Sweet. Well, Monty, Yishan, thank you both so much for joining us tonight to share yeah, this book great. with us. Yeah. How many Thanks more days so- are left on that Kickstarter? That's brilliant. Thank you. Um, yeah, we've got like uh, nine days left, I think. And um, uh, we're, we're on to the third stretch goal. So uh, we're just adding stuff to people's kind of package now. Um, new prints and getting new artists involved. Uh, we just got an artist called Dylan Teague, who's one of the best science fiction artists in comics. He's done um, like Meta Barons and he's done a lot of uh, European graphic novels. And he just did a big um, talk for Wacom about, you know, creating sci-fi uh, artwork and, and so forth. And he's going to do some artwork for us as the next stretch goal. So getting some really, really cool rewards now for people. Um, That's that, fantastic. That come, yeah, come free with their... Whatever they order, this just kind of comes as an added bonus now because it's all it's all stretch goals. Nice. Nice. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you both again. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank well, you, Monty. Thank you, Yishan. It's great to see both of you. And we uh we look forward to seeing more of your work in the future also. Cheers. Thanks. Thanks for having us on. All right. Get Thanks. some sleep. See ya. I'm going back to bed now. Yeah. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye, Yishan. Thank you. Bye, everyone. <laughs> the awkward zoom right. sign off that everyone goes through <laughs> <laughs> and almost his phone doesn't want to sign off yeah here i can help with that there you go there we go All right. don't take it the wrong way monty i just had to sign you off it was probably easier from this end <laughs> <laughs> he was definitely trying so yeah 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 no it's fine 
Yeah. Well, cool. it certainly seems like it's going to be a fun book. Uh, and it sounds like they're doing well on the Kickstarter, so. Yeah. And I can tell why um, he was nervous that she was so busy. I looked at her looked at her webpage. When you draw Hellboy, Batwoman, and uh, Buffy, you're going to start building a fan base. So <laughs> that tends to happen. I typed that wrong. I already forgot it. Has the website Lee Shan, Yishan Lee or Lee Yishan? It's on the. I found uh, it. It's on the. It. It's on the YouTube's chats. Oh, I know, but I can only have so many browsers open at a time. Do it. I just want to check out her art while we continue to chat. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, that's some good stuff there. Well, would, I, I'm excited for them. This would be a good place for us to take a break. I will gladly take a break. My glass is almost empty. In this week's issue of Geek in the City Radio. Brought to you by our longest sponsor, Guardian Games. You can find them at 345 Southeast Taylor Street in Portland, Oregon. And you are definitely going to want to find them because we're going to end up spending a lot of the winter indoors. <laughs> so uh, the best way to survive being indoors is to have lots of games to play. So go down there, check them out. They have all kinds of, you know, tabletop RPGs or Miniatures, card games, I mean, literally like every game in existence they have. They have also really uh, beefed up their selection of puzzles. So if you were one of those people that enjoys the calming effect of putting together a puzzle, Guardian Games has a pretty nicely curated selection. So go check them out. And when you're there, give them a big old distant thanks for being a sponsor of Geek in the City Radio. All right. And then next up, Bridge City Comics. Bridge City Comics, they are one of Portland's greatest comic book shops, and that is definitely saying something in this town because we got a lot of great ones. Find them over at 3725 North Mississippi Avenue in Portland, Oregon. Um, The news broke a few days ago that Jason Isaacs, (laughs) that'd be funny, Oscar Isaac, is likely going to play Moon Knight. And if you're like, why are you nerds all freaking out about this Moon Knight? Well, go to Bridge City Comics and pick yourself up some Moon Knight books. You will find out why dorks like me are getting all excited about the idea of Oscar Isaac playing Moon Knight. Uh, It's going to be fun. It's a weird character. It's one of Marvel's weirdest characters, weirdest heroes ever. Uh, And I love it. And you can get those over at Bridge City Comics. Bridge City Comics. I speaks good. 3725 North Mississippi Avenue here in Portland, Oregon. And before we get back to the show, once again, a big old thanks to Revnat, uh, Reverend Nat's Hard Cider for hooking us up with equipment so we can keep doing these shows from our respective rooms on the other end of town. So, yeah, big thanks to Revnat. And if you are thinking of an adult beverage, maybe keep the good Reverend in mind. And with that, let's get back to the show. And we're back. But you can go do something. That was just for me to know when I'm going to put a commercial in later. Oh, gotcha. Well, I'll be right back then. All right. Very well. Very well. Abel, how are you? Yeah. I'm fine. That's good. I had things to do, but there was not opportune moment to interrupt anyone and I didn't want to interrupt anyone so yeah that was I, I was in the same same way it was good uh, the things that I all I was going to do was point out was 
more of Monty's background, more of Ishan's background. Um, All right, what did I miss? The fact that they are currently at... It's fine. Well, what? It's good. It's fine. (laughs) Okay. Seriously, what did I miss? Nothing. He was explaining stuff, and then he stopped. Yep, it's okay. It's fine. We're totally going to talk about this later. Uh, okay, um, so here's the fun thing. Uh, did we plan anything else for tonight? Nope. <clears throat> yes, but, yes, we did. I mean, we, we did. We talked like, about it in Slack. Yeah, I mean, within the last an hour, we planned something, yes. You say that like we do something different every week. Uh, sometimes <laughs> we plan a few days in advance. At least we have an excuse tonight. Existential dread. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We're going to kick off Star Talks, where we cover a new episode of Discovery and The Mandalorian. Which oh. we can do for at least like eight weeks. Yeah. Right, right. But in, tech, in that case, technically, we've been planning this for all, over a week. Star Talking. Star Talking across, across the podcast first. Star Talking. Nerding out is the best. Okay, we have to workshop the theme song still. Uh-huh. Yeah, we don't have a musician on the cat on the in the crew anymore, so it kind of makes it hard to get those themes. I know. Going. So hey, need- somebody get get Chris Waffle on the line. Yeah. Or get Keelan uh, out of retirement. <laughs> I feel like we- one of those. Sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. I should stub. Go ahead. I was like, maybe we can just insert the Butterman song into this section. That'll be fine. <laughs> uh, oh, Sack says we could uh, we could use Primal Screams. Mm. What's that? That's just screaming. Oh, I was yeah. like, okay. From from deep inside yourself, reach deep, Aaron. <clears throat> no, no, I've been there a lot today. I don't want to go back there right now. <laughs> Let's just stay away. Uh, I actually haven't been there at all. I, I listened to my morning news, as I usually do, and then I just dicked off all day. It's actually been kind of nice. I, here's the thing is I haven't looked at any news, at, like, at all. Um, I've just been building and building and building my anxiety. <clears throat> um, I, I start my day with news radio alarm clock, so. Right. It It, it doesn't help that the past couple of weeks um the trump caravans have only been like four blocks from my house mm-hmm. and they've been super aggro and literally three nights ago they shot into someone's yard and the cops didn't make any arrests i didn't even they, hear they, about they, this they stopped them and then let them go of course they, they did. did yeah so that's why i've been a little on edge because i live mm-hmm. a few blocks away to so they're all coming in from washington like all of them. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. they have to take the 205 and it exits like a mile from our house. And then the direct, sh- yeah, they, they basically come within a few blocks of our house uh, once they start their racist caravan. <clears throat> so yeah, a little, little on edge. Plus we're doing I- other things that has made me extra edgy also. So mm. Curious, but I won't ask you to talk about them now if you don't want to. Not on the air. Totally fine. 
nothing bad. It's just how I process shit. Sure, sure. Yeah. It actually could be a good thing, but again, that's how I process shit. Okay. So. Yep. Very well. Right. Well, do we want to start with Star Trek or Star Wars? What do you think, Cable? Uh, I would say Star Trek over Star Wars for because the Trek that comes before Wars and alphabetically. Also, Star Trek debuts every Thursday, Star Wars every Friday. So also chronologically. Yes. Right. And technically also historically. Yes. All right. Well, then very well. Let us start with Star Trek Discovery. <laughs> uh, this was episode three. Um, it was Far From Home, right? Was this episode, I believe? Oh, no. Question. I thought it was Welcome to Earth. Welcome, uh, or people. Ah, we have already failed. Start talking. No, no, people of Earth. It's people, people of, of Earth. Earth. People of Earth. Which is fun because that's an alien saying. I know that. Yeah, people of Earth. People of Earth. It's a cookbook. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Uh, so episode three finds all of our cast members reunited mm-hmm. and they have made their way to earth because they have gotten their hands on enough dilithium. No, they already had enough dilithium and um, because they didn't go through the burn like everyone else. And they figure earth has got to be a good safe rendezvous point where they can sort of like get their bearings again and like find out what the fuck happened during their jump. Right. Uh, but that is not uh, the way that that went down at all. Yeah, no. Um, Heads up, if you haven't watched the episode yet, stop listening. Yeah, yeah we're probably going to spoil stuff. Yep. Yeah, this one's hard to review without spoiling. Um, so, spoilers. <laughs> Earth's kind of populated by paranoid dicks. They have become, I don't know that I would say xenophobic, but they've definitely become like the galactic version of nationalists. That, that's xenophobic. That's xenophobic. Yes. With, with, a good, okay. with, a, with a good little streak of hoarderism or survivalists. Like they're, they've, Earth became galactic doom preppers. Right. Uh, they went from being a socialist utopia to a, a sort of like every planet for themselves kind of a situation. Yeah. And then, and, Cable, correct me if I'm wrong, but they're called Earth Defense Force here, right? Earth Defense Force, yes. So that was that was also pre-Starfleet, right? Like way like before Enterprise. Mm-hmm. Before, so the Earth is so that was what Starfleet became. If I'm, I'm trying to remember correctly, was it originally called Earth Defense Force or the Earth Space? I don't know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, Earth and, Defense Force is a PlayStation game. Yes, and the uniforms kind of had, for me at least, a weird visual callback to. Um, Terra Prime. Oh, I think that was deliberate. Oh, yeah. No, but... I felt like that was very deliberate. Once again, I think we talked about this last week, the writers in Discovery 
are really like grabbing a lot of random shit from Enterprise, mm-hmm. which is really fascinating to me. I think it just makes sense. Like they don't technically have any other canon that they they can rely off of because of where they fit in the timeline. Used to fit in the timeline. Used to fit. Right, right. But well, they but they haven't learned that much other stuff yet. So as the as is uh, as is revealed later on in the episode. Right. Um. I didn't. I like this episode. I don't. I know some some Trek fans are like saying this is their favorite of the season, and I, like so far, this one I don't know why it kind of up until about the end it didn't quite fully stick the landing for me, um, and I'm sure it'll be explained a little bit more as it progresses. And I have to remember that a year has gone by for for Michael. Um, I'm not fully tracking with her kind of slight moral shift within a year because she's such a true believer and the end of episode one kind of shows how much she's a true believer that it felt odd that within a year part of her is questioning her own Starfleet ideals but a lot can happen in a year especially when you're sort of in this like survival scavenger mode and she's it. also she's also working she's she has spent that year and her like her new closest person is someone who uh by comparison to what Michael used to be like is like sort of an extremist very different priorities about the universe and what's right and what needs to happen and yeah i can see that it's just it's a ah I don't know. Something about it didn't fully click with me, which is why, again, I was really happy with towards the end where Shia Saru had that conversation. Um, Can you elaborate? It was the... It was a conversation where Saru basically suggests that he probably wouldn't have disproved of her plan, um, but that he needs a number one that he can trust without without question. And the first thing she does when they're back immediately makes him wonder, like, have I made the right choice in wanting to pick Michael as my number one? So when they have that talk at the end, I think it helps a lot with some of the feelings I was having in that episode with some of her actions. Hmm. I mean, I got, I got what she did, and I get it from like a dramatic stance. Like it, it played really well. Um, I don't know. It was just a, it was a trickier transition for me to to buy into one hundred percent with her character. No, I think I think that you know she has changed, and that that is a natural progression for the the events of the last several years for her. You know, like she. You know, there was a time where she thought she wanted leadership, but she's also made some really, um, maybe not poor decisions, but decisions that have had massive negative impact for a lot of people. And (laughs) once she's had a year to be away from Starfleet and that sort of need for hierarchy and structure in that same way, 
you it really kind of changes your perception on on those sorts of things and by the time she is reunited with the crew and has this conversation with saru about you know who should be in charge she has already come to the conclusion that she might have thought that's what she wanted and she might have been working towards that goal for a time but maybe it wasn't right for her maybe her her methods of decision making are not what she perceives to be the right mentality to be the leader of a crew in a ship. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I I just mean, I just, I'm like, maybe, maybe I'm like looking at it from a much more personal perspective, but I, I can see why she has come to these, you know, like new stances. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) It, It, Yeah, I mean, I think we'll just kind of go round and round on on that. It's not that I don't think she would not get there. It was the amount of time it took for her to get there that was harder for me to track. I mean, that Mm. that's kind of it. Um, think about what we as people have gone through in seven months, and what that's done to all of us, and how we question everything that we've ever been a part of. I think it is within the reality that Michael Burnham was left in for a year on her own is enough to have caused that change in that particular person's personality based on what we have seen of her before. Logic and emotion both drive her. She's driven by her emotions and she will take the most logical choice. I, I kind of agree that yeah I I guess it it wasn't as hard to sell for me is what I'm saying like I see exactly why she made the decisions that she did and why she's starting to become the character that she's becoming and I think the entire Discovery crew is going to be going through the same yeah she's had a whole year a year might not sound like a long time but when it's an entire year to basically experience and acclimate to a completely different type of society um it you just you can't help but fall into line and maybe fall in line is not the the right way of phrasing it but you you change a year of hardship changes you and i can tell you that because it's the third time i've done that um and i think that that's the whole point and that i think that's i i don't know what the writers are trying to do my perception of it is that by putting a character or characters into a situation where not only is everything that they've already known gone, they are still in a place where everything is still familiar enough that it's hard. They're having a lot of cognitive dissonance trying to, reconcile the two yes starfleet is gone the federation is gone all the people they've known are gone but there's still andorians there's still orions there's still telerites there's still humans there's still conflict there's still transporters the technology is still there and they're and, and the races that they're used to are still there but players have changed um new alliances have formed 
So it's familiar, but different. And I think that's, I think that's a reflection of what we've been going through is everything looks the same. Everything, we are still in the same world, but so much underneath it has changed drastically that we don't know what's going on anymore. Yeah. And so I, I, I find Michael's change inside of a year very, very believable and very relatable. And I think that the entire, like I was saying, the entire Discovery crew is going to go through that individually and as a crew as they spend more time in the future. Right. I mean, I get your guys' point. It's just my my read on Michael is harder to track for me. Mm-hmm. Especially because the last time she went totally off the books and didn't tell her captain, she got her captain killed. Mm-hmm. So, and I guess that's what's sitting in the back of my head of that is she really going to make that same choice again? Like, does that, I feel like that would be a weird voice in the back of her head saying, Hey, Michael, you're doing it again. But she also has a lot more experiences and perspectives that she didn't have. Back oh, when I know. She yeah, did that before. Yeah. That's why I, I fully cop to the fact that it's just my own personal read. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I, I I am not saying that you were incorrect at all in your assessment. Uh, that's, I mean, I can be. I don't care. That's true. I think I think Cable and I are both like looking at it from a very different <clears throat> perspective or past experiences. Um, what I will say is, I I think that Saru is the better choice for captain. Oh yeah, I didn't want her as captain. <laughs> no, I meant him wondering if he should trust her as, when he was like, I now question me picking you as number one. Right. Um, no, I, I think Michael's well, gone I way that, beyond a desire to become a captain. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that those two things go hand in hand. Uh, Saru has obviously always uh, displayed a certain level of, a certain amount of level-headedness and um, uh, you know, he takes his time making decisions. You can see him sort of, you know, always gathering information and perspectives mm-hmm. and feelings mm-hmm. before he before he makes a command. Most of the time, unless it's like obviously urgent or whatever. Sure. Um, and if Michael continues or has has changed in a way that takes her away from that style of leadership. I can see where, like, you know what, that's, we're probably going to butt heads. I, I don't think I'm going to like your your leadership style or your decision-making. And, right. uh, yeah, yeah, I feel a little bit weird about it. Yeah. But that that part made sense for sure. And this new, more, I hate to use the word aggressive, maybe more confident Saru um, is not going to have any problem busting her down if he has to. Mm-hmm. I don't find him aggressive, but I think assertive. That's what I meant confident. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which also makes me think that eventually, especially what we saw on Discovery this week, where he didn't want to fight in the in the ship battle. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was obvious. I mean, but he was still willing to literally make Discovery a shield between two ships. Knowing that their tech is so vastly outdated against what is being used against them. And that's not a choice Saru would have made a season ago, pre-Ganglia, or, yeah. Like, that Saru uh, wouldn't have done that. Yeah, yeah, you're probably right. He he definitely is is more assertive. Um, but I think that the idea that he would say, no, no, 
this is our fight and we we never intended for you to get in the middle of it because that's obviously what you want to avoid right so like we'll figure it out that i think oh, is yeah. intrinsically saru yeah no totally but i think what i was getting to is i i wonder if we're going to see a time eventually this season that it's going to be a callback to what the baul fear about kelpians is that our event's going to push Saru where he's like, you know, I tried talking. I tried being nice. I tried reaching my hand out. But you done pushed me and my crew too far. I think <laughs> <You> so. <laughs> I, think, I think we are going to see that. And I, yeah. I, and it will be largely... strangely frightening to watch Saru cut loose. Mm-hmm. The way that... I don't know if this is the way it's been written or the way that Doug Jones plays it, but there is an element to Saru's, the, the two conflicts that they've now been in, where one one was the bar fight and then, then the next was the getting fired on by the Earth Defense Force. Both of those, he when he's trying to get across, he's like, I don't want to fight, I don't want to do this. There's an element to that performance that says, I don't want to do this. I don't want to fight because if I do, you're dead. Exactly. It's like, I, like if we fight, I have already won. You cannot win this fight. You don't know it, but I do. Right. It's, and... uh, it's, that's the trope of the monk, right? Right. Yeah. Like you're a pacifist, but also I'll fucking snap your neck before you know what happened. Mm-hmm. I can it's do the, that. I choose not to. Yep. It's the, I, I actually had shades of like, especially in the bar scene last at the at previous episode, I had shades of like classic in a weird way, like classic Bruce Lee movies mm-hmm. where he's like, he's talking and talking and talking and telling him, don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. Pow. And all of a sudden someone's on the ground. He's like, can we go back to talking now, please? Mm-hmm. Because I'll do this to all of you if I have to, but I don't want to, you know. I think I mentioned last week, he was he moves faster than every human in that room. Yeah. Uh, Which is funny I, because during regular activity, he has a very, like, sinuous kind of floating mm-hmm. aspect to his, his movement. I. I'd love to interview him one day and ask him if he takes some inspiration from like snakes and reptiles in that they move really slow because they try to conserve their energy. But when they have to fight or strike, it's fucking lightning fast and they do the fight and then it's right back to like, and then it's like you slow right back down, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, okay. I can definitely see that. I mean, even the way he threw his head back in that fight, it was like a Cobra like, it was like right before Cobra spits. You know? Mm-hmm. It was cool. <laughs> um, Detmer's still fucked up. <laughs> Sorry, we can we can go back. I'm glad that they did not just drop that thread. And I'm hoping that... I'm looking forward to them exploring that more in little bits throughout yeah. the season. Yeah, Same. Because, because I think that that is going to be the, the B, B plot that they use to talk to bring out uh, Wosakun and Reese and Bryce and the other gal whose name I can't remember now. Um, she's the one that 
was playing. Uh, oh, was Aram? Yeah, it was Aram, and then they gave the actress a job playing a human version. Right. Yeah. Um, I'm. I'm wondering. I feel like control being in here is is actually kind of lazy, but I'm not saying I don't it's think not it's that at all. I don't think it's that at all. But I'm wondering if it's got something to do with the issue of cybernetics in the future, because I've been thinking back on scenes that we've seen in episodes one and two. We haven't mm-hmm. seen other cybernetic entities at all. No implants, nothing. Like everyone's pretty much all biological. I'm sorry. You're still talking about Detmer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Detmer. Um, okay. Uh, well, don't forget there was that other gal who had the robot head, just the head. Um, and yeah, I don't think it's a control situation. That, I, I straight up think they're just playing the long game on some PTSD storytelling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's possible. Yeah. Um, Let's talk about the Earth Kids. Well, they're a paranoid bunch. Yeah. Uh, Which, I but, mean, I... uh... No, go ahead. I'm just saying, uh, from what we know so far, I don't justify it, but I understand it. Mm-hmm. You know, right? No, it's unfortunately it's it's sort of the logical chain of events when you know when other certain events happen, mm-hmm. bad things happen. You get scared. Someone shows up and says, "Oh, we have to protect our own. Let's shut the doors and you know just be jerks to everyone who's not us." Um. But no, I I mostly wanted to talk about um, the new young actor who I believe is supposed to become a series regular, uh, and that their their character name was I don't remember their name their rank or whatever Adira. they're using these days, but Adira, yes, mm-hmm. um, who is I believe Star Trek's first like non gender conforming character slash actor yes as a as a character yes mm-hmm. uh, and they they also are gearing up to be a pretty interesting character um, they are host to a trill symbiote which mm-hmm. is that threw me off I'm like I didn't think a human could do that they can't not for very long because Riker had a symbiote in him for a little bit. Okay. Yeah, they, they can't hold it very long, uh, which is why I think the next episode, they're going to trill. Oh, okay, um, so they're going to I think like, even the trailer showed it. it. Yeah, they, don't, they can't live very long uh, inside a non-trill host. Uh, and, and if slash when that happens, does that mean that Adira will no longer have that knowledge that they they currently have uh they gain from being uh linked with that symbiote right now you know i don't know that tng episode suggested that Riker had some memories once the once the symbiote was removed but i don't know if they start to fade away or not it's a curious question they i would imagine they would just like any other memories yeah mm. whatever you know our memories right. are whatever they are right well, and the, the reason I was curious about that is because that they, they revealed that this symbiote, prior to being in linked to Adira, was linked to someone named General Tall. 
and that's Ad, they Admiral. they needed that person. They were looking for that person, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, it's Admiral. Yeah, Admiral Tall. Thank you. Uh, I can't remember why Tall is important at this point, but um, I, I think just because Tall was this Starfleet voice that they heard saying, "If there's any feder, if there's any Starfleet out there, come back." Ah, gotcha. Okay. It was the cry in the dark kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Um, which also kind of gives me the impression that the Earth Defense Force is not all that new. Is not all that old. If Starfleet was still broadcasting just a couple years ago, mm-hmm. so. Or are they two separate entities? Like, is there still a Starfleet and it's even smaller and more fractioned than we realize? Or fractioned? Oh, oh you were, you were you're implying that Starfleet is this other group now? What, what did you say they were calling themselves? Earth Defense Force or something like that? Well, that is who protects Earth, the Earth Defense Force. Right. Uh, but they, they did mention that Starfleet left Earth at some point in... Mm. In, in in what is now the past, because uh, be, Starfleet being Starfleet, they were viewed as a liability to Earth because they're a target for so many different factions. Oh, that's right. So right. rather mm-hmm. than letting Earth continue to be a target because of Starfleet, they're like, Starfleet, get the fuck out. Go deal with your problems on your own turf. That's right. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It tracks. Um Which is funny because Starfleet was Earth's contribution to uh, space travel. Right. Right. Um, Not that there's a lot of that these days. Um, But yeah, it just became like this, again, like this very exclusionary situation where like, well, Starfleet, you're just a target for trouble and Earth needs to protect humans only. So take take your multicultural business somewhere else. Um, <clears throat> I kind of saw it coming that the Raiders were also humans, but they didn't stop the impact of it. Um, and I appreciate the, the the captain, the Earth Defense Force captain, when she realized that they had been killing humans. Mm-hmm. Like her look of shame of like, oh fuck, what have we done? And the miner's look of shame of like, we we had to resort to this because you killed us when we first came asking for help. Yep. Um, yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's a lot going on there and, and it comes to like, almost like just generational shame that's impacting both of them. And I think that gets back into um, the concept of trying to mirror what's going on is that if we, Resort to her if. Sorry, I'm trying to find words. If we resort to our basis impulses of fear and violence um, because we're afraid and we don't know what's going on, we're not going to be our best selves. And that's exactly what they were like shown. It's like you responded to what's going on in the galaxy with fear and xenophobia and, you know, nationalism, um, planetism. (laughs) Um, And that took them down the route of killing their own people. And that should be shameful. And that should be something that they look at it and go, this was the wrong choice. We have to be better than this, which certainly paves the way for 
the Discovery crew to bring the Federation and Starfleet back into this universe. Right. Especially since they're the only people that can travel anywhere right now. <clears throat> yeah, the my uh, the Mycel network's going to become... I mean, the captain of EDF was correct on one thing. That paints a massive fucking target on the Discovery. Mm-hmm. You know, everyone's going to come gunning for that technology. Um, now, and also, I don't remember, did they? No, they did. In season two, they learned how to safely travel. They were no longer damaging it. Mm-hmm. Okay, they figured that out. Okay, right, right, right. Um, I did kind of cheat and skip ahead and just kind of look at the wiki that shows all it gives are the titles for the next, all the cu- upcoming episodes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And one is called Unification 3, and that has me really giddy. Mm-hmm. You're going to have to give me a refresher on Unification that. 1 and 2 was Spock trying to get Vulcans and Romulans to become one society again. And since this will also be the timeline, there is no Romulus. We haven't heard a peep about the Vulcans yet in this era. Right. In in this current Discovery era. So that's just me being like a tractor. I'd be like, oh, what does that mean? (laughs) I'm also trying to remember... uh what ended up being the final, if any, decision on Booker. Did he leave? Or is he still around, but he's probably going to leave? Because this is, you know, Starfleet's not his thing. He already left. He okay. left, but he'll be back. He le- Hopefully. We still need to know what the deal is with Grudge. Besides the fact that she's a queen. Um, the The thing that they did to Booker is they, like, the sector of space that they were in is so many light years away from where Earth is that now Booker is in a completely different part of space where he can continue to do business. <laughs> all new deals. But away <laughs> from all of the people that were hunting him. Right. <clears throat> and they I mean, can't we... get to him because they don't have dilithium to get there. Right. Or the, those that, uh, yeah, there's not much. But yeah. Right now, the, like... Discovery is the Fort Knox of dilithium. Right. They have the biggest supply of dilithium in the entire, in two quadrants. Right. Right. Um, um, I, I guess mean, we know, of... I know we see him again, Bean, because there was a season trailer that showed them making out once. They haven't made out yet. Mm. Yeah, they, uh, they've been pretty elusive on that. They don't seem to be, well, sometimes it seems like they are, and sometimes it seems like they're not romantically involved, Booker and Michael. Not to say that that's necessary. It's a little bit, cliche and tired at this point to always you know make the new guy the love interest you know the new person of you know the the interesting gender for the main character every time someone new shows up oh okay well now's a new love interest they could just say cool friends that you know rescue endangered species around the galaxy yeah it's not gonna yeah yeah, it's, yeah i get I wouldn't, it but... but i wouldn't be mad if they did <laughs> it's just two beautiful people and their cat yeah, I mean, that does help a little bit. <laughs> um, little Trek nerd moment. I love that the tree is still there at what was once Starfleet Academy. Mm-hmm. That's pretty great. That was that was a sweet moment for everyone I, to get to, like, again, like, a positive spin on yeah. that cognitive dissonance of, like, this is all different, but you know what's here? This tree that we remember from our... Um, our um, 
Days with the Academy. Academy days, thank you. Yeah. Um, but even that is different. But it's a positive different for once. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's a part of me that's like, well, they're never going to do it, but it'd be kind of cool if like, like a Boothby hologram showed up and says, leave my tree alone. Oh, God. I can do without Boothby. That would be fine. I know. Uh, just just so that you have a heads up, uh, Freaks has two more episodes this season. Oh, boy. He's, he's yes. directing episode eight, The Sanctuary, and episode 12, <laughs> The Good of the People. Yeah. And then the last episode of the season is directed by Ulatunde Osunsami. Sanmi. Who is the showrunner on Section 31, right? Is that no, who's show? He's the, they're the showrunner for Discovery. The two oh. runners, Bo- Boye Kim and That's right. Erica, crap, I don't remember ah. the last name. They're the showrunners on, on uh, uh, Section 31. They were the writers of People of Birth. Okay, that's right. All right, um, right. Yeah, Bo Young Kim and Erica Lippelt. Right. So yeah, it's gonna be fun. Yeah, and it's 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 definitely a nice. Uh, it is an oasis of goodness that I look forward to every Thursday. Uh, it, it gives me something to look forward to this Thursday. That's for sure. Yes. Get me not is this episode is the next episode. Right. Um. You know, that's how we look forward to things. As every Friday, <laughs> mm-hmm. we get the Mandalorian, which came <laughs> back this last dun, week. Dun, 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 dun. Damn, did it come back strong? I like this. Uh, right out the bat, they were like, "You know what? Fuck it. We're just doing a western. We're not making it whatever meets whatever in space. We're like, no, we're just doing a western. It's like, and so much of a western that we're ca- <laughs> we're casting Timothy Oliphant as a marshal." In Boba Fett's armor, we are going to turn. <laughs> and you know what else we're going to do? The Weequay bartender. You know what? He's the same actor who was the bartender in Deadwood. Mm-hmm. Deal with it. Oh, I did not catch that. I yeah. never watched that one. And John Favreau's like, you know what else I'm going to do? You know how Sergio Leone like or like used to like, you know, play around with aspect ratios during fight scenes. I'm going to do that too. I'm making a western. <laughs> it was awesome. Also, the the um, character that we got from season one that I wasn't really expecting to see back in season two was Sedaris, yeah. and I thought that was charming. Her line when she says, "Hey, if this thing has kids or buds or whatever, I'm a, I want to buy one off you." Mm-hmm. It was the if it buds, it's great. Um, I like how they acknowledge that the Mandalorian that he's kind of okay with droids now. Yes. She he barely trusts your kind now, and he's like, mm. you know, all right, it's, it's fine. They can give it a once over. It's like, well, oh. once one of them saves your life, you know, you 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 start to come around at least a little bit. Mm-hmm. Right. He even took off his helmet for that guy, for that droid. That's true. That's because it wasn't alive. <laughs> yeah. No man was going to see. No human was going to see his face. Oh. Ig. Um. I think it was the fact that IG-11 did what it did to protect the child mm-hmm. more so than, like, yes, he helped out Mando, but he did all of that because his charge was the child. It's like, right. yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, 
I mean, I've heard some, they're not complaints. I've heard some commentary that this episode is very much like A leads to B leads to C leads to D. And I'm like, so like, sometimes I don't need a plot to like keep me on my toes. Sometimes I just do want kind of a classic adventure Mm -hmm. and we got that. It's a classic Western looking for a man. Are you the man? I ain't the man. Well, I need what the man has. I need help first. Okay. <laughs> I mean, um, yeah. Also, we saw more Tusken Raiders in this episode than the entire six films, nine films. Mm-hmm. And it was so interesting that part of me is like, can we get a Tusken Raider little like mini movie? I'm actually curious <laughs> about their culture now. Like now I'm like, I kind of want to know what, what, what their life is like now. That was cool. So a coworker of mine has done a deep dive on Tuscan Raiders from this episode. It's like, okay, well, clearly I want to learn more. Um, extra tidbits about Tuscan Raiders. When they are bonded to their Bantha. Aww. And their Banthas are, if you're a man, you get a male Bantha. If you're a woman, you get a female Bantha. Because that way, when you pair up, not only do you mate to make more sand people, your banthas mate to make more banthas. Oh, which made that the fact that one of them voluntarily took their bantha out as bait mm-hmm. even more poignant. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I didn't even think about that when you were describing that. That's well. But then, but then, didn't the dragon take him instead? Yes, it did. Yes, but that was that. Still, that was the dragon's decision. the The raiders' decision was to do this, for, give up its bonded, you know, for the right, companion right. animal for the for the greater good. For the greater the good. The greater good. Also, I love that line after that one Tuscan raider died. He's like, "The Mandalorian, they may be open to other ideas." Yep. <laughs> Um, I'll be right back. Yeah, keep talking. Sorry. Yeah, I do. I do think it's important that they spent as much time on the Tuscan Raiders as they did. I think that gets back into Fabro just going. Let's go ahead and show off the rest of the universe, like the yeah. dealt with all the Jedi and all of this and all the Skywalkers. We don't care. Let's let's go talk about everything else that everyone's wanted to talk about. Mm-hmm. I know they sort of like wash their hands of it at, at, you know, like, oh, they scare off easily, but they come back in greater numbers and then they never did. So it's, it's fun to see um, that they have a society and that they have like cultural practices and mm-hmm. also that they are not just fucking raiders that everyone should be afraid of or hate. They, they are willing to cooperate for, you know, like Aaron said, the greater good. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I thought that there were a lot of things that they were doing with that like that still parallel into the real world where, where like people that we label as savage or uncultured we are wrong we are 100% wrong just because we don't understand it or have taken the time to understand it doesn't mean that that's you know that, that that's true at all mm-hmm. um I do think, uh, what was it? I thought that the the line, you steal their water and yet you won't accept a drink from them, was 
very a strong statement. Yeah, it was a strong, strong statement. <clears throat> what was I missed that? I'm sorry. The... You steal their water and you won't accept it. Oh. So good. Yeah. Um, I but then I also appreciate, like, later he does take it. Mm-hmm. But before that, I, I enjoyed the moment where the Tuscan Raider drops that explosive and that miner wants to basically just start killing him and Timmy Oliphant's character is like, it was an accident. Like, stop being racist. Like, you people... It, it, the implication of, like, oh, you've never fucking dropped anything before? Mm-hmm. Um, but then cut to him looking at Mando. It's gonna be great. <laughs> um, it's because he knows that he has to address his own internalized racism and exactly. he's dealing with it. But in order to do that, he also has to set the example of don't be a racist. It is a very, it's, you know what? It's the fastest way to fucking learn a lesson is to have to be the one teaching it at the same time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, And I think they did a really good job of it. Um, They did. I mean, you know, to the point where like they're, you know, they're open to further, you know, collaborating again in the future. They're, you know, and just generally as two, as two societies neighboring each other, they are, no longer afraid or hateful of each other, at least for now. It, there's obviously still more work that will have to be done, but... Not as far as the Tuscans are concerned. They're like, we get we get the carcass of the dragon, and we will never bother you again unless one of you comes looking for us. Yeah, the Mandalorian also, has that line of, like, they will never raise a blaster to this town until one of you breaks the peace. Right, right. I yeah. forgot about that line. You're right. That was tight. Um... Which is it? That is a phrase or a, a like a concept, a, like a practice that uh, is it really like connotes a certain level of honor and nobility mm-hmm. that I'm sure mm-hmm. no one would expect from a fucking Tuscan raider. Well, it was like I don't know if you guys talk about this as a way, but that line where the Mandalorian says they are brutal, they are a brutal people. They have survived the Dune Seed for 2,000 years. Mm-hmm. That's how they do it. Like, mm-hmm. none of you could survive without, you know, without, you have the comforts of technology, of modern Star Wars mm-hmm. technology compared to the Tusken Raiders, and they still have survived the Dune Sea. You know. Um, also, can we yeah, they about, already like, have practices for handling crate dragons. No one in, no one in that village, but was it Moe's... Most something. Uh, most po- most pogo pogo. It yep. is not pogo. most deaf. Uh, most pogo. Thank you. Um, most deaf is a suburb <laughs> filled with really cool people. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah, just general agreement. Um, agreeing there. The fucking crat dragon pearl. That was a deep ass nerd cut. Is that what that was? I thought it was some sort of egg. No, okay. it's a pearl. So I knew it was uh, the Crate Dragon Pearl, but I forget the significance of it. So the main significance that this now is officially canon, apparently, Han Solo used a Crate Dragon Pearl to buy his way into the Sabic game that won him the Millennium Falcon. Oh. Oh. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then they've, there's been a couple other ones. Um, yeah, the, it's a... It's a big, they're a big deal. 
Um, and yet we've never seen one on screen. Harvested it fresh from a crate dragon. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, you know what? No, makes perfect sense. I was say, I, why would a dragon make a pearl? So it's a dragon that lives in the sand. Of course, it makes mm-hmm. a pearl. Yeah. Star Wars. Nope. No, no, it's it's. I wanted to argue the logic, but actually, it no. The moment the I stopped to think about it, it's perfect logic. Mm-hmm. Also, I totally nerded out. So, a crat dragon, crate dragon, looks like a brass or brown dragon because they live in sands and deserts, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. D and D, their mm-hmm. breath weapon is acid. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, of course he spits acid. He's a he's a he's a dragon that lives in deserts. That's how they do. <laughs> Why would why does it need to or why is acid the correct answer for that? It's not, but that's what D and D has done for forty years. So when I saw the crat dragon spitting acid, I nerded out. <laughs> that's literally it. Not to say that I want it to be different, but I also feel like fire breath would still make a lot of sense because fire turns. You know, if it's hot enough, you make glass out of sand, and yeah, that would be can't... pretty fucking cool. Yes, but then you can't travel through it, and they clearly travel quicker through sand than they do anywhere else, like grabnoids. That is true. That is true. They're very sluggish above sand. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just excited we finally saw Krat Dragon, man. That was cool. Yeah, the only other time I've seen it in any Star Wars media is uh, Knights of the Old Republic, where you have to go kill one. Right. And it's tiny in comparison. To this one's I- not... Yeah, As opposed to that scene of like, what's that? That's the dragon. What are those? That's us. I don't think it's the scale. <laughs> I've never seen a great <laughs> dragon, so I did not get to have that excitement when it was first revealed. I was like, so well, this, yeah. is a, this is a Tremors episode now? You've seen the episode. You've seen the skeleton before. When? Where? It's in the background of A New Hope on Tatooine. Oh, but I wouldn't, have, you... I wouldn't have known that. What kind of a nerd are you? Well, I'm enough of a nerd to know it's Crate Dragon, not Krat. God damn it. You know what I mean. And Sabak. Okay, so the jury's still out on Sabak or Sabak. Thank you very much. I've heard it multiple times, and I've only ever heard it as Lando says Sabak, but he also says Han. Yeah, yeah. So that's who you're going to go with? I know he's a cool guy and all, but that's really who you want to take pronunciation lessons from? Uh, yeah. (laughs) Anyway... Also, my friend, uh, fucking, someone just posted the nerdiest thing ever. And I don't know on. if I can. I don't. It's so hard to share. Through, YouTube doesn't uh, have like an upload in the chat. It's kind of a I know. bummer. Here, I'll just I'll put the link, and you guys can just look at it while we're talking. God damn it! That's a long URL, but it still made me chortle. It is. Oh no! Yeah, you've heard of Elf on a Shelf, but have you now heard of Lando, Lando on a Mando? Mando. <laughs> oh, that's to make... dumb, and I love it. <laughs> I mean, what else about? We didn't get a lot of the child, which was fine. I mean, he's still there. Whatever. That's because the show's called right. The Mandalorian. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm good with that. Well, I mean, I think I'm, I, I'm I totally fine. I, th- I think a lot of people probably expected that the series was always really going to be about, you know, how 
uh, Jin Jaren is, you know, working to save or keep safe this child. Um, but it's a big universe, and there's a lot of other shit going on. And mm-hmm. so the the main arc is still getting the baby to, you know, a safe place. But, you know, you got to go on side quests first. And not all side quests are Baby Yoda approved. Nope. I think most of most of the adventures they've been going on are not approved for <laughs> Yes. Right. And, and you can't have him come in and, like, save the day all the time. You know, no, because that, baby hand thing. because that takes away the tension of it. Like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think a little baby Yoda goes a long way per episode. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. I also wouldn't have felt bad if they had, it, it, like, if he had left him with Amy Sedaris's character. Mm-hmm. Um, no, that would make sense. Every now yeah. and then, you're like. It, just gotta stay here, baby. This but at the same time, by taking him with him, to that that's what you know kept them from getting immediately into a gunfight when the marshal shows up. It's like you got this little one here. I'm thinking maybe you're you're not above you know talking things out. It's like no, I'm going to you that armor. <laughs> I'll kind of just a, add like how comforting was it to see Timothy Oliphant as basically like a sheriff or a marshal again? There's mm-hmm. just something right about that. <laughs> <laughs> I spent 20 minutes talking about this uh, younger version of Timothy Oliphant who was like a really, uh, like, that's a good get. Like this like young, you know, like fit version of, nope, that's really him. Mm-hmm. Good for him. Yeah. Just really keeping it uh, tight. I loved how small he looked in Boba Fett's armor. I liked how small Boba Fett's armor looked on him. Yeah, I was gonna say he looks like he's like bursting out of that. Yeah, he's too tall. Armor. I think that's what I meant. It just looked gangly. Yeah, like the chest piece was too small. The head, it's like (laughs) on that big neck. It's like, oh, that armor doesn't fit on everyone. That's funny. I'm trying to think how how old would Boba Fett have been when he fell into the Sarlacc pit. Okay, so he's, what, eight in Attack of the Clones? Yeah, roughly? Mm-hmm. Right. And then oh. a year later is Order 66. Hold on, let me get my calculator out. No, he's, he's somewhere in his that. mid-30s. What? No, he's... No, hold on. That seems too old. So hold he's on. eight in Attack of the Clones. Yes. Revenge of the Sith is three years after Clones. That's 11. 19 years between Revenge of the Sith and A New Hope. Oh, so yeah. 30. Original trilogy is three years. He's thirty-eight. Yeah. Wow. But he spent some time. <laughs> right. That's right. He spent some time in that there Sarlacc pit, though. Because so what we've seen from the clones. No, we was... didn't. Based on the timeline of when the like the mining guild took over most. What's it called again? Most Pogo. Whatever. Most Pogo. Pogo. Um. Mining Guild, like, Death Star 2 blows up, Mining Guild takes over most Pogo, runs the share, uh, the Marshal out of town, Marshal's wandering around for days, it's found by Jawas, right. and has that. That's all inside of a week. That's true. I guess any amount of time in a Sarlacc's not good for it, but yeah, no. he's not in there long. He, maybe a couple days. Yeah. 
And also, even though he's badass, the life of a bounty hunter, those are hard, those are hard years. Mm-hmm. I will never yeah. subscribe to that belief. What? That Boba Fett is a badass. I think they're about to change that opinion for everybody. Which will be nice, because I'm with B on he, this one. Change the opinion that he is or that he isn't? That he is. Yeah. Because, just think he's... because now it's Tamura Morrison. I think everyone thinks Boba Fett's so fucking awesome just because of MC Chris. I, ca- I cannot attribute it to anything else. I attribute it to the... That's not why I've always thought Boba Fett was cool. Because I mean, I've never heard of MC Chris when Boba Fett came out. <laughs> um, I, my, it's solely based on the look of his armor. He yep. does nothing else. But he That's... looks cool. It's the same yeah, reason yes, why we yes, all assume cool. that the Emperor's Royal Guards are badass. They look cool. They look fucking cool. But they just stand there and do nothing. Right. But I mean, like, and I know that I don't know everything that is canon or even like has been retconned from the canon in all of the different works of Star Wars, but I have never seen anything that well let me take that back. I have never seen the adult Boba Fett be a badass. I've seen young Boba Fett do some cool shit because he was in a gang with other um, mercenary slash, you know, privateers. Mm -hmm. But even then, he's a child and he still kind of gets his ass kicked a lot because he's a child. Mm -hmm. So I've never seen him win a fight. I've never seen him really be a badass. I've, I've seen him wear cool armor, but that's about it. And it wasn't even his armor. It's his death. Mm hmm. So I'm, I've just always been underwhelmed, and uh, I'm uh, now I'm really interested to see what you're what you're teasing about. But that, uh, I'm not disagreeing with you. you. All of those reasons are true. They have done nothing with adult Boba Fett until now. I think yeah. that that's. I think Favreau knows that. I think Filoni knows that. And I think that they have the opportunity to, with the, with Tamara Morrison, who is a great actor. I do enjoy him in these roles. Yeah. Um, I think we're going to get to see something that uh, out of Boba Fett that we've never seen before. Um, and so I guess that leads us to like the like the last topic that I'd wanted to cover is, um, so you clocked him. Cable, when you mm-hmm. were watching the episode, you knew right away that that was uh, Tamura. Mm-hmm. I didn't pick up on that. Um, and then once once it was made clear to me, I'm like, well, then who the fuck is it? It's not Django Fett, and it's not why why would it be one of the clones? I, but I guess like the the they're probably it's probably Boba Fett. He is. He's actually credited as Boba Fett on IMDb for the oh, episode. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. I looked. For, I looked for it somewhere, and there was not a name, yeah. a character name listed. Uh, and I mean, that's technically the only thing that makes sense. Like, why would other clones who survived the the regime change be on Tatooine? Have you, um, have you finished watching Rebels? No, I'm in season three. I have had a couple episodes where, you know, they, well, I'm, I'm well past the point where they introduce Rex and his friends and then he mm-hmm. ends up joining them. Yep. Um, so I'm past that. But 
I don't think I have that much left in this series. But even at that, I'm like, why would clones be on Tatooine? They wouldn't. That's the trick is what you've seen of the clones and rebels. Those are the only surviving clones. Gotcha. Yeah. They did not. They didn't make it into the Empire. Well, one does because Wait, they, in, they were decommissioned right. and Rex. some of them got away. Um, well, not decommissioned. They're genetically designed to die. But mm-hmm. some of them that's, have. Flaws. Oh, sorry. That's that's how they phrase it in the show. Yeah, because. they're um, Yeah. But that's I guess that's sort of like comments to my earlier statement is like at no point did it occur to me that it would it could be Boba Fett. But I guess mm-hmm. logically, that's 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 who it yeah. would be. Mm-hmm. It's the only person I thought it could be because I just. That means that, like, fucking The Mandalorian ended their season with me jumping off my couch going, what? And then mm-hmm. they opened with the ending, me going, what? Because I was like, oh, Boba Fett's armor. That's cool. I totally get that. That makes sense. And it looked like it had been through a Sarlacc. Fuck yeah, it did. <laughs> and then hung out, you know, in a fucking sand crawler for a while. Okay, um, well, that that definitely is opening up for a... Uh, a what I would expect to be a pretty interesting story because he survived but got separated from his armor. Possibly. Like, uh, that was my take on it. Merrick's take was like, what if he just sold it? What if he's the reason that he, like, what if he sold it to the job? That's what I'm also wondering, like... I'm like, I hadn't thought of that. I'm, you know, he's... there. This isn't canon, but there was a Star Wars comic back in the Dark Horse days um, where a, a basically a, a Jedi exiles themselves to Tatooine. Mm-hmm. And they... And very much like a... It had a lot of like uh, elements of dances with wolves and like this Jedi was like, I'm done with war. I'm just done with it. The Jedi, the Sith, it's all bullshit. I'm done. I'm going to where no one will ever find me again. And he goes to Tatooine and he eventually joins like a Tusken Raider tribe. He eventually has a child. Like he becomes one of them until, you know, the galaxy pulls him back as it were. And that scene at the end with Boba Fett, he's got a blaster. He's got a gappy stick and he's got Raider wrappings on his arm. Like I was like, okay, steal the gun, steal the gappy stick maybe, but you're also dressed like them except for your face. Mm-hmm. Like, mm, I think he's got a bond with them that they haven't yet revealed. Oh, interesting. Well, in in the fashion of Dave Filoni and John Favreau, mm-hmm. I would not be at all surprised to see them incorporate part elements of that story into this, you know, new canon. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> years ago when Disney took over Star Wars, they never once said they were throwing away all of EU permanently Mm -hmm. they made it known that they weren't going to count anything eu but they weren't imposed they weren't opposed to like picking shit they liked hence hence grand admiral thrawn Mm -hmm. so i don't know i'm pumped these two shows are are so very different but yet are are equally exciting and calming for me i feel like for the first time in a long time both of my favorite space franchises are in the hands of creators that not only love it, but get it. I I agree with that assessment. You know, and this isn't even, oh, Star Wars finally got dark. I don't see that. I could actually, The Mandalorian is still for kids. Mm-hmm. 
but adults can enjoy it. I could sit an eight-year-old down, and and they and, and you know he or she, we would both just nerd out, and I think like, what does that mean? Oh, let me tell you, child. You know, my seven-year-old niece loves it. So does mine. She adores the Mandalorian. Yep. You know, as does my forty-four-year-old, you know, hetero life mate in Denver. Mm-hmm. They both have the same reaction, you know, <laughs> <laughs> which is kind of great, you know. Well, I think that's a really good note to end on because we're going on two hours. Oh, shit. All right. Well, with that all being said, um, next week, I don't know what we're going to do. I don't know. I, I, I don't. don't. Know. Let's not plan next week until about, you know, Sunday. Yeah. <laughs> I like that plan. Yeah. Wait. Yeah, we'll talk about this off, off mic. It's the most realistic plan that we can make. Yeah, no, no. It's something else. Uh, well, with all that being said, I am a very exhausted Aaron Duran. I'm a slightly drunk Beanerita. Yeah. I'm a not tired and completely sober Cable Hashitani. And we'll I think you probably, did it wrong. We'll probably talk with everybody next week. Be nice to each other. Stay safe. Wherever you go, there you are. Yeah, that's a good spot.